Right, so welcome everybody. It sounds like we have fellows from all years, and we're going to talk about how to critically evaluate clinical trials. Thank you so much for coming. I'm uh, Vinay Prasad. I'm a professor of epidemiology and biostatistics here. I'm um, also in the Department of Medicine. I'm a hemonk attending here at SFGH and the VA. So if any of you pass through and do that consult service, we might overlap. I also do clinic at, at the general and soon to be at the VA too. So I wanted to start by getting us to reflect a little bit about what shapes our interpretation of cancer medicine. And I think for many of us, our interpretation of cancer medicine, if we're perfectly honest, it's not mostly shaped by peer review articles. In fact, a lot of what we learn in oncology in fellowship and a lot of what we learn year after year is from other sources. For instance, the NCCN guidelines. I mean, how often are you in clinic and you have the NCCN guidelines open? And then all of the people that email you every day, Onc Live, Cancer Today, whatever that VJ Hemonk is, they email you and you might not read all of it, but you might read the headline. Very rarely they'll post a video. And I know that not many of you are reading it, maybe, maybe 20, 30 people are. ASCO Post and podcasts. There are a number of excellent oncology podcasts. I make one plenary session and there are a bunch of other ones I listen to. And there's a bunch of other ones I don't listen to, but I know they're out there. Journals, I like to look at journal articles and I think you do too here and there. Conferences. And then the industry, the representatives, their advertisements. Finally, our colleagues. How many things do we learn in oncology? Because somebody tells you, hey, you hear about that new CAR-T stuff? You hear about that new drug? You hear about that new, etc." So much of it is just from word of mouth. And then finally, ourselves. And this is really a talk that's about that last category, ourselves. Because ultimately, I think going forward, we have so much information flooding us. There's only ourselves we can turn to when it comes to making sense of it, to decide what we're going to do in our practice and what we're not going to do. So by way of background, my practice, and these slides are for something else, so that's why I think I just said this. But uh, yeah, yes, I'm here in epidemiology biostatistics. I do heme and hemolignancy clinic at the general, uh, do solid clinic, uh, and I attend uh, 14 weeks on hemonc. So my practice is panoramic. I mean, I see everything very broadly. I see a little bit of pancreas, a little bit of esophagus and a little bit of myeloma and a little bit of von Willebrand's. You know, it's everything in oncology. That's rare, I think, these days in academic medicine. And the reason I put this disclosure out is that I think you gain something sometimes from a panoramic view that you lose when you focus myopically on one disease or another disease. I hear a little interference on this. I wonder if somebody has a cell phone. Is that just me? Let me check the list. Yeah. Maybe, maybe everyone could mute themselves. Okay. Got better. Okay. So, you know, I think there's something to be gained by a panoramic view of, of, of all of oncology. And I hope to show you some of that here. So what are we going to cover? We're going to cover activity, efficacy, randomization, activity, efficacy. Activity is if a drug has some activity or some effect on the tumor itself. It's about the biological effect of the drug. Efficacy is living longer, living better. That's what the patient cares about. And I think in oncology, we conflate the two. We think activity yields efficacy. It turns out you're very unlikely to get efficacy if you don't have activity, but merely having activity is not a guarantee of efficacy. And that's the challenge in oncology is kind of separating those two concepts. In randomization, we're going to talk about control arms, post-protocol care, and crossover, which I think are three key features. And I hope we save some time for questions. The specific trials I'm going to cover, I'm going to cover the POLO trial, pancreas cancer. I'm going to cover Cipolucil T. I'm going to cover Javelin 100 bladder.
And if those of you attended my talk last year, I think two of three, two out of three of these are the same. How do I keep up with the literature? Every week, a whole bunch of articles dump out and they come out from different journals at different times. Monday, around the middle of the day, that's when JAMA IM dumps their new articles. Tuesday, it's Mama JAMA. Wednesday, 2 p.m. Pacific time, 5 p.m. Eastern, the New England Journal is posting the new articles. Uh, here this week, they're going to make an exception on Sunday. There's going to be something provocative coming then. But usually it's Wednesday at 5 p.m. Thursday is when I look at JAMA Onc. Monday, you look at the JCO. You can decide what journals you want to look at, but in oncology, I think the journals we tend to gravitate to are Lancet Oncology, JCO, JAMA Onc, New England Journal. I think those are sort of the biggest journals that cover practice change in clinical trials for what we care about. One fateful Wednesday, I opened the New England Journal and I saw this study. Maintenance of Laprib for Germline Mutated Pancreas Cancer. It is a practice-changing study. At least that's what they told me. Now, what was the first thing I knew about this study? I had seen it. I just saw the abstract. It popped up on my screen. And I think my email filled with stories. And this was one of the stories that broke right at that moment. It says, forget controversy. AstraZeneca's dynamic duo wants to dominate the market for cancer drugs. This is a quote from an article in Stat by Matt Herper. Quote, about the results of Polo. Quote, it's unbelievable, said Baselga. This is Jose Baselga, who just passed away a year ago. It validates the principle that we have been fighting for all these years, that even the most difficult disease, even the disease where you think you're not going to win, if you find the genetic vulnerability, if you find that, then those giants, they crumble. Really dramatic quote. I said, whoa, the giants are crumbling. My God, I saw, I better read this polo study if it's what it takes to cr crumble a giant. It's not often you giant crumble in this line of work. And just to show, this was a couple years ago where Baselga and I uh, had a cordial debate, and uh, it is sad to hear about his passing recently. This was the press release put out by the University of Chicago Press. This is what they said. They were one of the, I think the PI of the study was at University of Chicago. The press release says, quote, when we saw that progression-free survival data, my first reaction was a little scream of joy. We finally made real progress in the treatment of a subset of patients with advanced pancreas cancer. A, real, a little scream of joy. So this got to be good. So whenever I read an article, I don't read it cover to cover. If you're looking for a recipe to go to sleep and have a deep, deep slumber, then read it cover to cover. But if you want to actually get something out of it and not fall asleep, I urge you to read it actively, which means you open it up and you look for the things that you want to answer. You look for the answers to questions in your mind. So my first question I always ask is, what the heck did they do? And I imagine that you're sitting across from me and I got to answer that question to you. We're at a dinner party. You said, hey, Polo, what's this Polo study? You read that? And I said, yeah, I looked at it. So what, what happened to that? I say, well, as you know, there's advanced in metastatic pancreas cancer. And as you know, the treatments have been, you know, gemcitabine, then gemabraxane, and then we have fulfirinox, and that's pretty much all we have in frontline setting. And of pancreas cancer, there's a subset of that has mutations in germline BRCA, maybe 10% of that cancer. Those are often younger people, and those are people in whom they tend to live longer because they are younger and they have this germline predisposition to pancreas cancer. This study took those people... We know since they have mutations in BRCA, they often benefit most from platinum. And lo and behold, they got four months of a platinum-containing regimen like fulfirinox. After four months, if their tumor wasn't bigger, if they had stable disease or better, they were randomized three to two to a lap rib or sugar pill. And then the primary endpoint of the study was progression-free survival. They find a benefit there. So that's what they did in the study. And so I just want to look through the article and get enough out of it so that I can just tell you succinctly what they did in that study. 
That's my goal, first goal. I'm not reading it cover to cover. I'm just looking around. Usually last paragraph of intro, first paragraph of results, a little bit of the methods, look at the figure. I just want to skim it to get that, get that 20 second clip out. Is the control arm what you would have done in practice? That's my first question I ask. Is the control arm what I would have done to this patient had they not been in the study? Because the clinical trial can only change your practice if the control arm is your practice. And when I read the polo study, I had to admit to myself, my practice isn't to put people on placebo. I wouldn't take someone with germline pancreas, germline BRCA pancreas cancer, give them four months of therapy, and if the tumor wasn't bigger, I wouldn't put them on observation. No, no, no. I would give them at least two more months of a platinum-containing doublet, and then I would give them 5-FU maintenance. But if they were really tolerating it well, I might just keep giving them full furanox till progression, as they did in this study. So I wouldn't stop all therapy in pancreas cancer because I'm a good doctor, and that's what good doctors do. We keep giving therapy. We don't stop it. We have no basis to stop. What was the primary endpoint of the study, PFS? Is it a clinical or surrogate endpoint? It's a surrogate endpoint. I hope to persuade you of that. A clinical endpoint is something that intrinsically matters to people, how well they feel, how they function. And a surrogate endpoint is a stand-in for that. It's in lieu of that. It's something that correlates with that, but not quite that. And I want to prove to you that PFS is a surrogate. And what about other measures of activity or efficacy? How does that tell a story? Can we see a story here? And I want to talk to you about that. So what did they do in the polo study where at the dinner party, they took those patients, germline BRCA mutation after no progression for four months, they get randomized three to two. We could do a whole conversation about why they're doing three to two randomization. We can talk, we can talk about it in the Q&A if you're interested. And then they're measuring PFS by resist 1.1. So this is what they're doing. Is it control on what you would do? I don't think so. And I think I mentioned that. Proof that it's not what I would have done is if you go back to the original Fulfirinox study, the study that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, you'll find that the median number of treatment cycles administered was 10. And in Fulfirinox, which is a five months of therapy, that's the median of that study, okay? But it's actually, that's not a fair comparison because Fulfirinox in the front line takes everybody with pancreas cancer and it sees how, what's the median among all comers in the frontline setting. Polo, you had to have completed four months of therapy without progression. It's a subset of these people. I've depicted it here in this graph from the original Prodige study by everyone below that line. You see, it's not everybody because if you progressed in the first four months, you wouldn't be eligible for polo. It's the more favorable people. So what was the median number of cycles in that group of people, the people who would be eligible for polo? And the answer is, if you go back to that study, I calculated, back calculated to be seven months of treatment. So somebody in Polo, had they been in the original Fulfirinox versus GEM NEJM paper from 2011, they'd have gotten seven months of treatment probably on average. But it actually should be even higher because we're not selecting people for germline BRCA. This is a study that didn't have a selection filter of germline BRCA. They tend to be younger. They tend to do better. In the control arm of the Polo study, the people are still living, you know, in the 20 months mark. And so if you look at that and you back calculate, I suspect that we're really talking about the most favorable group of people in this entire study. And these people probably would have averaged, had they been in the original study with a protocol that they didn't stop chemo, they'd have gotten probably 12 months or more of chemo is what I suspect. Now, this is, of course, a guesstimate. It's not a perfect science. It's what we call modeling. But these days, modeling is in vogue. This is modeling. I'm modeling what it might be. But it gives you some perspective that they might really be getting less chemo than they otherwise would by being on this control arm. The primary endpoint was PFS, and these are the curves. And there's the old saying in oncology that if you can fit the laser pointer between the curves, 
you can give the plenary at the national meeting. And here you can fit several laser pointers between these curves. It's dramatic. The hazard ratio is 0.53, which, you know, is I hear is pretty good. What is a hazard ratio? A hazard ratio is the ratio of the instantaneous risk of event in one arm versus the other arm across all points in time. It's actually not the same thing as the relative risk. A hazard ratio of 0.53 doesn't mean a 47% reduction in the risk of progression. That's technically incorrect. People often say that it's wrong. It can be very, it can be slightly different, um, but it is a numerical representation of the benefits seen here. And it looks pretty good. The median tells a different story. I mean, not a different story, it tells a similar story. It goes from about four months to seven and a half months. Some modest step forward. Would I call it a giant crumbling? Not necessarily. Would I le leave out a scream of joy? I don't know. I'd like to see some overall survival results before I screamed joyously in my office. But, you know, this is, this is something. Is it a clinical or surrogate endpoint? What is PFS? We talk about it all the time in oncology, and I think our understanding of it is a little bit hazy. What is it? Anytime you run a trial in metastatic solid tumor, you measure at least a few target lesions at the beginning of the study. They have a diameter, a cross-sectional area, and a volume shown here on the figure. And then PFS is the time until one of several things happen. One, the patient passes away. That's a survival part of it. It is a time to event endpoint. So by definition, it couldn't have happened at time zero. It's composite endpoint. One of several things count as the event. If the patient passes away, it's not good. And it's scored as a PFS event. That's the S in PFS. Now, I, know, I think some people are, there's a movement to call it the progression-free interval, but that's not exactly fair because if you die, that's scored as an event, and that's why it is a progression-free survival. It's a composite event. The second thing that happens, there's new lesions on the scan. When you started, the lungs were clean. Now there's new lesions. That's a progression event. Both of these two things are not good, by the way. The measured lesions get bigger. If the measured lesions get 20% bigger, that's called progressive disease. If the measured lesions initially get smaller, if they get more than 30% smaller, why, that's a partial response. And if they get bigger, now we use the nadir value, the smallest it ever gets. So you can have progression even though your tumor is smaller than it was when you started if you had a deep nadir. That makes sense. So progression-free survival is the time until one of these four things happening, whichever comes first. Time to event composite endpoint. We have those in cardiology, major adverse cardiovascular effect events, but we specifically delineate the composition of that. Whenever I read a paper, I ask myself, are they showing me evidence the drug is active or are they showing me evidence the drug has efficacy? And in this case, PFS in my mind is evidence you're active. You're showing me you're changing what it looks like on a scan, but what are you doing to health-related quality of life? What are you doing to overall survival? You're not showing me evidence of that just yet. And it turns out the answer to that is, I think I'll show you in a few slides, there's no OS benefit and there is no health-related quality of life benefit. I noticed something very interesting about this study when I looked into activity. I noticed that Olaparib had a 20% response rate, which means out of 100 people, 20% of them have at least 30% shrinkage. I'm not surprised that 20% of people have 30% shrinkage because that's a response because supposedly this is an active PARP inhibitor. So supposedly it should be doing something to a tumor. Among patients taking sugar pill, I noticed 10% of them have a 30% response rate. Patients who take sugar have 10%, 30% or more shrinkage. Now that to me caught my eye because I'm no expert on sugar, but I do know sugar pills don't shrink cancer. I do know that. I learned that. And so for me to see one in 10 people have a sugar pill shrink cancer, 
makes me start to ask tough questions. We'll come back to that. Here's the overall survival of the study. This is the efficacy side of the ledger. And you can see in the original trial publication, those overall survival curves, you can't fit a laser pointer between them because they're indistinguishable. They're statistically indistinguishable and they're visually indistinguishable. And in the follow-up publication of Polo that appeared this year in the JCO, of which I covered on the plenary session, they're absolutely indistinguishable. And yet the authors try to put it in the spin cycle. So to me, a drug that's very costly, that doesn't improve overall survival and health-related quality of life is not a good drug. It's a bad drug, but the authors think it's a game changer. They're letting out a scream of joy. I'm letting out a, a, a sigh of a sigh of terror because we're spending all this money and people aren't living longer. But how do we put these facts together? You've got a real drug randomized against sugar pill that has no survival benefit, but it has a PFS benefit. And sugar pill has a 10% response rate. So we got to think a little bit about response. A response is 30% tumor shrinkage. Why is it 30%, not 20%, and not 40%? The number sounds arbitrary. Where do the numbers come from? So it turned out in 1976, this oncologist, Charles Mortel, had a dinner party in Mayo Clinic, and he invited 16 of his favorite oncologists to the party where they busted out 12 marbles, and they got down to business, and they took 1,900 measurements. So it's as I say, one heck of a dinner party. One heck of a dinner party. The kind of dinner party you'd love to be invited to, where they take 12 solid spheres ranging in size from 2 to 14 centimeters, put them on a mattress that's been placed on a table, and on top of that mattress, they unroll foam rubber, half an inch thick for the skin and subcutaneous tissues, 1.5 inches thick for the abdominal walls, and then each of the oncologists present bring the ruler or caliper, quote, he employed in clinical practice. Why does it say he? Because this is a biased era. There are no women, sadly, and they are men, around a table, taking measurements through foam rubber. Does anyone know why Charles Mortel has convened a group of people to take measurements of marbles through foam rubber? Why is he doing this? Does anyone know? I don't know if I can even see the chat, so maybe. Yeah, that's right. So he doesn't have CT scans. He lives in an era without CT scans. And in an era without CT scans, how do you decide that a tumor is bigger or smaller? Everyone walks into Mortel's office. They say, oh, vitamin C can shrink cancer. And, and uh, the bark of the Pacific yew tree can shrink cancer. And the periwinkle plant can shrink cancer. And the peach pit of an apricot can shrink cancer. He says, whoa, how do we know if it's going to shrink cancer? And the answer is we need some way to see if the cancer has shrunk. And he's using activity as a screen to decide what to advance as a candidate compound in oncology. But how do you have activity in a world without CAT scanners? And he needs, so the answer is that you, of course, feel the tumor with your hands and your calipers and make a measurement. But he knows that's not a perfect science. You feel a marble, you write five centimeters, I feel it, I say 4.2. So what's the threshold where a marble where, we, where, where marble is so different in size that we can reliably see it's different in size. That's what he set out to do. And he's tricking the people in the study because actually two marbles, five and six, are the same size as are seven and eight. And he's doing this on purpose because then he can come up with a really clever experiment, which he can ask, how often do two different doctors think that the same marble was actually different in size? And depending on a cutoff value you use, if you use a bi-dimensional 25% measurement, we think the same marble is different one in four times. We have a one in four error rate. If you use a bi-dimensional 50% measurement, we think the same marble is different only one in 20 times, roughly. 
And how often does the same doctor think the same marble is actually different in size? It also depends on the cutoff. And 50% bidimensional lowers the error rate to roughly 1 in 20. He likes 1 in 20 because that's the error rate that Rick Fisher and colleagues put forth, sorry, Fisher and colleagues, Ronald Fisher and colleagues put forth with the p-value. It's a 0.05. It's a 1 in 20 error rate. He likes that. And that's what he's trying to approximate. So Charles Mortel picked a 50% bidimensional measurement as a cutoff of response. Why? Because that's what old men in 19 diggity can feel through foam rubber as a shrinkage. This cutoff was chosen for an operational reason. And in a world without CAT scanners, how do I know which candidate compounds to advance? It wasn't chosen because people live longer or live better necessarily if the marble is beneath that size, but it has become synonymous with measures of efficacy. And that's, I think, the original sin of oncology, confusing activity for efficacy when they are very different things. Ah, you're smart, you're paying attention, and somebody out there is thinking, wait a second, you're pulling a fast one. You said it's 30%, but Mortel picked 50%. That's different, right? Well, the answer was actually in the original WHO criteria, we used a bidimensional 50% measurement as shown in this slide. Whereas when we revised it to measure in one dimension with resist, we simplified and used a 30% unidimensional measurement. And the reason that we picked that number was that both of those measurements give you the exact same volumetric shrinkage if you use the equation 4 thirds pi r cubed. So we are actually to this date using the cutoff that Mortel created from a study in 19 diggity where people were feeling marbles through foam rubber. It's the same cutoff. It's just, you know, we're using one dimension, not two. But mathematically, it's the same. And that's why we use it. And so the reason I tell you that is to tell you a couple things. One, to really convince you that just because a drug has a response doesn't mean people live longer, live better, because it was never picked for living longer, living better. It was picked because that's what people could feel. It was operational. And also to point out that even though it was picked in this arbitrary way, it is the case that sugar pills rarely achieve that arbitrary benchmark because it turns out spontaneous remission in cancer is rare and sugar pills don't shrink cancer. And it turns out that Ian Tanak and colleagues previously looked through all the placebo-controlled arms in randomized studies and they found that WHO criteria was only met in 2.7% of cases. In other words, measurement error, the error between radiologists, only gives you a 2% response rate. But it doesn't give you a 10% response rate. But Polo has a 10% response rate. As you see, it has a 10% response rate. So why does it have a response rate five times higher than sugar pill? Why does Polo have a five times higher response rate than it should from this sugar pill? Does anyone know? These are real responses. These tumors are shrinking. And sugar pill don't shrink pancreas cancer. So why are so many people got their tumor shrinking on the control arm? You can put it in the chat. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So I think you nailed it, which is that it was the delayed effect of the chemotherapy. That chemotherapy for Burkitt's lymphoma, chemotherapy for small cell lung cancer, that can crush the tumor in a matter of days. You know, we get TLS. But chemotherapy for pancreas cancer, that's like getting a freight train to move down the tracks. You put your back into it, and you're pushing, you're pushing, you're pushing. And even when you let go of the train, it's still going to keep coasting. And that's what you see here in this figure, where I've shown you the chemo is being given. They have stable disease. They enrolled on this study. One arm gets olaparib, and they're measuring response from randomization to the end of the study. This 20% has response from here to here. But from here to here, on sugar pill, it's 10%, and it's probably delayed effective chemo. 
Now remember what I told you about the control arm. I wouldn't have stopped chemo. I wouldn't have stopped chemo before I knew the response rate was 10%. But now that I know one in 10 people have tumor shrinkage, I really wouldn't have stopped chemo because these are people who are actually, their tumors are desperate to respond to these drugs. Imagine what this response rate would be had you just given them more platinum doublets, two more months, and then five if you, or maybe even eight more months, or maybe 12 more months as, as Prodige would suggest. What would the response rate be? I will argue that I don't think it would be 10%. I don't even think it would be 20%. I think it would be higher than both those numbers. It would be 30% or maybe even higher than that. And in fact, this trial, if anything, makes me think that olaparib maintenance is worse than, it is worse than had you just continued chemotherapy. And proof of that is that you get a 10% response rate in, from sugar pill, from your control arm, which is, I think, frankly, unethical. Imagine what it would have been had they just gotten a little bit more therapy. They're responding to it. It's just taken them a while to respond. So you see, the response rate is a clue that they are getting really negligent care in the control arm. So polo trial, how do I put it all together? You halt a drug that's normally not halted. You randomize people to a new costly toxic pill or placebo. You measure an endpoint that is not a measure of what matters. It, it, PFS is not what matters. And historically, it's never been accepted in pancreas cancer because, by the way, you don't need to wait for pancreas cancer OS. It's happening so quickly. In fact, in the original trial publication, we already had the median OS. It was 18 months. Why do we have the median OS? Because it's happening very quickly. So you don't need a surrogate when you can measure the hard endpoint. You don't improve survival. Quality of life is not better. So what does the FDA do? Costly drug, $12,000 a month. It's a tested against sugar pill unethical study. No survival benefit, no quality of life. What do they do? On the question of whether Olaparib in this setting has a favorable risk benefit profile, the ODAC votes in favor, 7-5. And this person is quoted as saying, heck yeah, because pancreas cancer's risk is ultimate, said Dr. So-and-so. So now we have the giants crumble. I had a, I had a scream of joy and heck yeah. When the reality is, what we should be saying is, even though we took a group of people who do way better than the average pancreas cancer patient because they're younger and have germline mutations and because the control arm is already living much longer than pancreas cancer patients usually do, and even though we took those people, we unethically withheld chemotherapy that would have extended their life from them, and we gave them a toxic, costly $12,000 a month medication, even though we did all this, we still couldn't prove any benefit in OS or quality of life from our terrible, terrible drug. And so the scream you should be yelling out is a scream of terror because it's actually a pretty terrible, terrible thing. We published this commentary in the journal Cancer, Olapra for BRCA mutant pancreas cancer. Should the polo trial change practice? The answer is no. So, so that's what I look at when I read a study. You know, I went from polo trial reading the press release and it's also a clue why you can't trust OncLive. You can't trust STAT. You can't trust the news coverage of a study. Not only were they wrong, they were diametrically wrong to the right answer. I mean, they were, they were sales people for this study. Some of them actually worked for the company. The ones that don't work for the company, that's the ones I puzzle about. Why are they selling the product? The next example, I'll talk about the hardest thing in oncology to really appreciate, which is what happens after the trial ends. When the trial's over, that's not necessarily when everything relevant has happened. So everything that happens in a trial will be captured in the PFS endpoint. But if you want to look at overall survival, PFS2, and quality of life, it also matters what people get after the study is complete. So let's give you an example, Cipolucil T. Cipolucil T is a cancer therapeutic vaccine. 
It's not a regular vaccine. A regular vaccine, even those that are meant to prevent cancer, like the HPV vaccine, the way it prevents cancer, it prevents you from getting the HPV that causes the cancer. Sort of a regular old vaccine. Back when vaccines prevented you from getting the disease that, that they were for back in those days. Sipilucil T is a cancer therapeutic vaccine. It's for somebody who already has prostate cancer. We take some of the prostate cancer out. We create a, we stimulate some immune cells, create some adjuvant, create some purified protein, create some cells and inject that in your arm, hopefully to get the patient with cancer to have an immune boost against the cancer that's already in their body so that their own immune system can fight that cancer. It's one of the original immunotherapies. And we've been trying it for a lot of years. For 40 years, there've been many, 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 many studies. Cipolucil T is the first and only cancer therapeutic vaccine ever to come to the U.S. market. And it's come to the market on the basis of a survival benefit in randomized control trials. So what is that survival benefit? How does this happen? It's the one success story. We have this concept in oncology called crossover. Crossover occurs when you take people with cancer, you randomize them to drug or placebo, and whoever was initially assigned to placebo, they get the drug when they progress. So this is unidirectional from placebo to experimental drug, not from drug to placebo, and it happens at progression. And that's what we typically mean by crossover in a study. Put another way, if you're randomized to drug, then you progress, you get standard of care. If you're randomized to placebo, then you progress, you get drug. Okay. And then when you progress a second time, you get standard of care. <clears throat> the reason it's confusing, I think, is because there are situations where crossover is desirable, you want it, and there are situations where crossover is undesirable and you don't want it. And you can either get it or not get it. So you can get a four-quadrant model. If you want it and you get it, that's good. And if you don't want it, you don't get it, that's good. But if you want it, you don't get it, that's bad. And if you don't want it and you get it, that's bad. And we can get any one of these four situations. So anytime you read a trial and they say there's crossover, code break 200, there's crossover. Okay, well, was it a situation where I wanted it and I got it or I didn't want it and get it? That makes all the difference. And right now there's conceptual um, lack of clarity on that. We have a publication under review now that will hopefully shed clarity. I'll talk about, for the purpose of this talk, a different example, Cipolucil T. It has crossover in the study, but was it something we wanted or we didn't want? And then we'll get an example of the other category. Cipolucil T. So what do they do here? Here's the survival benefit. Placebo versus Cip T in prostate cancer patients. And you can fit several laser pointers between those curves. This is a real benefit. It's a four-month benefit. If it were real, it would matter. But unusual things about this product. It's the only cancer therapeutic vaccine ever to be approved. For 40 years, we've been trying. They're all negative. This one comes to market, but then Prostavac fails, GVAX fails, more and more failures. It's the one success story. But that also tells you something different from a Bayesian standpoint. It tells you that this is a class of products that mostly fails. Why is it suddenly working? How can we explain that? If you give 100 people with prostate cancer Cipolucil T, it has a response rate that's not even as good as sugar pill and polo. This is a 0% response rate. Zero people have tumor shrinkage. Nobody has a tumor shrinkage. And the other weird thing about it is the progression-free survival is identical. There is no difference in PFS. This drug has literally no activity against the cancer. But yet there's an overall survival benefit from four months, significant benefit. How do you make sense of that? Is this drug, it goes in your body, it just, go, it just goes straight to sleep. 
It waits, doesn't do anything, doesn't want to let the body know it's up to something. There's no response rate, obviously. There's no change in progression, but then it wakes up and it just starts working. Is that possible? Is that what it's doing? Think about the study. They took patients with metastatic castrate-sensitive prostate cancer that randomized them to CYP-T or placebo. What happens when they progress? If you have metastatic castrate-sensitive prostate cancer with low tumor volume and you progress, what do you get if you got CYP-T? What do you get if you get placebo? If you progress on CYP-T, you get docetaxel. If you progress on placebo, there's crossover, so somebody thaws out that CYP-T shot and shoots you in the arm with it. And then if you progress again on CYP-T, you get docetaxel. So this randomized trial's got two things going on. It's a trial of CYP-T versus placebo, but it's also a trial of docetaxel at first progression versus second progression. And docetaxel, it turns out, is a life-saving drug in prostate cancer that's consistently shown response and PFS benefit. And so this trial suggests that there is a big difference in the docetaxel administration. If you read the paper, you find 82% of people on the CYP-T arm get docetaxel, 73% of the placebo group. Sorry, 57-50. 57-50 are the numbers. And the time it takes is 12 months and 14 months. So now is this a randomized trial of a vaccine or not, or a randomized trial of differences in docetaxel administration? And the answer is, which makes more sense? None of these vaccines ever work. This is the only one that works. It has no tumor shrinkage. It has no change in PFS, and there's a difference in the use of this product post-protocol that has been proven over and over to extend your life, and that difference favors the arm that got the vaccine. So is it the vaccine doing the work or the docetaxel? And the AHRQ writes this in their report. We cannot exclude the fact that survival benefits in the absence of response rate or PFS is actually due to harm towards the control group from getting a delay in chemotherapy due to getting an ineffective frozen salvage product. And that is the problem of CYP-T. CYP-T has crossover, yeah, but crossover was absolutely undesirable and it has totally ruined the trial because I don't know if CYP-T does anything for somebody or if it is just a discrepancy in docetaxel. So where is crossover undesirable? In trials assessing the fundamental efficacy of a product. If we don't know it's efficacious, then we shouldn't be crossing people over. We couldn't even answer the question we set out to answer. We may even get the wrong inference that CYP-T is a good drug when in fact CYP-T does nothing at all. And I think that might be what had happened here. So that's what happens after a trial ends. That's why it's so important. Because if you didn't think about what happened after the trial end, you wouldn't be able to make sense of that study. Now let me give you another example the other way. This is an example where you desperately wanted crossover. You really needed crossover, and they didn't do it. And that's why the whole trial falls apart. This is Javelin 100, a Velumab maintenance for urothelial cancer. And Javelin 100 is the first and only study that shows a role for a Velumab or PD-1 maintenance after somebody completed the initial therapy of Carbogem or Cisgem. But this article came out in 2020. In 2017, the standard of care for bladder cancer second line changed with Keynote 45. Keynote 45 was Pembro versus dealer choice chemotherapy. And it shows, as you can see here, a clear OS benefit. You see how the curves initially favor chemo and then they cross? Well, that's because there's a fraction of people that aren't getting much immunotherapy benefit here. But then the Pembro pulls ahead and the hazard ratio favors Pembro. And Pembro is a clear winner. I mean, Pembro is the best second line drug in bladder cancer. And we knew that in 2017. 2017 Keynote 45 comes out 
and Javelin 100 starts randomizing people between May 2016 and June 2019. That's when they're randomizing. I'm showing you here on this timeline Javelin's dates of enrollment and when the keynote results come out. You can see keynote result comes out real early, yet they keep accruing on their study in the months thereafter. This will be important. When do people progress? On the control arm of Javelin 100, they're going to be progressing pretty briskly, but this is the distribution of the progression. This is when people are progressing. Availab maintenance, look, it's not doing much for a huge chunk of people. They're progressing immediately on Availab maintenance because bladder cancer is a tough cancer. Javelin patients start to progress. I'm showing you here on the timeline where I think that happens. So in my mind, anybody who is progressing from this time and beyond, they probably should be getting pembrolizumab second line. Why? Because pembrolizumab has already proven a survival benefit second line. So we really need to ask, is maintenance of alumab better than the current standard of care, which is what I would do for my patient in clinic, which is, is the control arm what you would do, which is giving them pembro second line as of February 2017. And this is the study of Avalumab, Javelin 100 bladder. They get four to six cycles of platinum doublet. They have to get a big treatment-free interval. This actually kind of selects for indolent biology. And then they get randomized to maintenance, no maintenance. If you assume the different rates of enrollment, you would assume that there's a tiny fraction of people who could have progressed before Keynote 47. But as long as you were alive and well after you had progressed, you should be getting at some point in your cancer journey Pembro. And I suspect it should be near 100% of people in the control arm should be getting pembrolizumab. These are the results of Javelin 100. It looks impressive. There's an OS benefit. But the question is, of course, what happened to the control arm patients after they progressed? Did they get what they should be getting, which is pembro? And in the table, you see the overall population, only 43% of people get any PD-1 as a, as a per, upon progression in the best supportive care alone arm. This number should be astronomically high. It's way, way low. So Javelin 100 is not a study that shows universal Avalumab maintenance is better than the current standard of care, which is reserving Pembro for second line. It's a study that shows universal Avalumab maintenance in people who meet Javelin 100 criteria, i.e. they had frontline therapy without progression and a treatment-free interval without progression, that those people benefit from Avalumab versus some of them, half of them, never getting a PD-1 drug at all. But that's a question that's not relevant to my practice at all. Has nothing to do with my practice because I would have given them a PD-1 drug. So Javelin 100 is a useless study for the practice of most American doctors. And this is not the only one. This is a table made by Ashray Maniar that's published in the European Journal of Cancer where we look at the second line use of a PD-1 drug in trials that seek to move the PD-1 drug all the way to the front. And trials like Keynote 48, where Pembro was de facto second line and had a neck cancer, we're moving it up front, Pembro versus Platinum 5FU versus Extreme. The rate of giving Pembro on the back end of Extreme is abysmally poor. So I don't know if Keynote 48 tells me I should give everyone Pembro up front or if I'm better off reserving it. In fact, that might be better because the trial is unable to answer the question of interest. So Javelin 100 Bladder is a very bad study. It didn't change practice for me. And there are many other people. I just talked to a GU onc who says, if I can follow my patients closely and if I'm going to give him Pembro upon relapse, I'm not going to give him Javelin 100 bladder. I'm not going to give him maintenance of Alumab because why burden them with more treatment visits? Why make them come to the office if I can get the same OS with less time in the chair? And that's the right answer. So I think it's not a practice changing trial because the control arm is not getting what's in your practice when they progress. 
And it's a trial where you really wanted crossover. They should have built it in. They can't make excuses. They have access to the drug. They could have provided it. They can pay for it. They got so much money. And why is crossover desirable? Because the treatment had already proven efficacy in a latter line. And the trial tests routine upfront use. And so you have to test routine upfront use versus giving it on the back end. So in all of these cases, I truly do not know if the routine upfront use of the drug in more people with more toxicity and more therapeutic burden is better than giving it just for the fraction of people who progress when they progress. And this has huge implications for adjuvant PD-1 drugs because there's a huge group of people who are getting treated who don't need it at all. And the people who do need it, I don't know if I would get the same benefit if I give it to them later. Because unlike other classes of medications, PD-1s can have durable remissions even for large tumor burdens. So we have a paper with Claire Smith where we look at the rate of crossover in adjuvant trials when you ought to have it, and it was very, very subpar. So frankly, I and others do not follow Javelin 100 bladder, and I don't think you have to. Okay, so I think we covered what I hoped we would. Activity. Activity is measure of a drug's effect on tumors, measured by how much tumor is in an aliquot of blood, how much MRD is in an aliquot of blood, how much tumor is visible on a scan or a PET-CT or an MR. Activity is the effect of a drug on a tumor. And it's also how much, is, how much it shrinks or how fast it grows. That's activity. But that's not what people care about. Just like they don't care about their LDL level or A1C per se, they care about living longer, living better, and feeling good. And efficacy is only overall survival, health-related quality of life. We should never confuse one for the other. Measures of activity are often necessary to have efficacy, but they do not guarantee it. And many active drugs fail. You can read, some, you can read in the Malignant book about some great examples of highly active drugs that failed. I think it's really important we think about that. And just because drugs have better activity doesn't mean they're better. Uh, if a drug has a higher MRD rate than a regimen that has a lower MRD rate, that doesn't tell you that they live longer, live better in myeloma. And when it comes to randomization, it's really important that you randomize people to the control arm should be what you give. And if you wouldn't let your mother get that control arm, you should never randomize somebody to that trial. It's unethical. So that's my like, you know, universal benchmark is would you put your mother on that control arm if she had that condition? And I think a lot of the times the answer is no. And that means we have to halt those studies. The post-protocol care has to be up to the standard of your clinic. You can't randomize them to available bad maintenance versus prayer when they have progression. You got to give them Pembro because that's what you're doing for people off for people outside of the study. And the way the companies justify that is by going to sites where it's not available. But that creates a different problem because if you go to a country without Pembro second line, well, guess what? They're not going to be able to afford Avelumab maintenance because they can't afford a Pembro second line, which if anything would cost less than Avelumab maintenance for more people. And finally, crossover. Whenever you read a study with crossover like Codebreak 200, the first question is, should it have been there? Should it have been there? Is it an example where it's already proven benefit, we're trying to move it up, or is it an example where we've never established benefit at all? And if you've never established benefit and you have crossover, whatever result you get, don't let the company tell you the interpretation. Because if there's no OS benefit, it doesn't mean that there would have been a benefit were it not for crossover. It could also mean there's no benefit, end of story, or the drug's actually harmful, but the harm was masked because it's distributed in both arms. So don't accept their explanation. It's often not proven. It, it might not be true. So back to our interpretation, we set out with this, NCCN Onc Live, Cancer Today, ASCO Post, podcasts. Frankly, with rare exception, the majority of oncology podcasts are uh, extremely laudatory and a distortion of the truth of cancer medicine. Uh, and so I don't trust them too much. 
uh, plenary session tries to be, uh, it tries to be not critical. It's just trying to be calling balls and strikes. But it turns out in an ecosystem of unrestricted hype, calling balls and strikes comes across critically. Um, journals, conferences, the industry, I wouldn't trust them. I mean, I don't get my cues from them. This is why we have to kind of look at it ourselves. So yeah, I will skip over some of these. Um, the last things I'd say is if you like this talk, go to my YouTube channel and watch some of these videos where I walk you through how to read a clinical trial. We got quantum to clistimab. Uh, when ASH comes, I'm going to try to put these out every single day of ASH. I'll cover all the ones that break. Uh, when ASCO comes, I try to put it the day of so that, you know, you have an immediate antidote to um, the, the sweet, sweet nectar of the plenary. And I encourage you to listen to Plenary Session podcast. We had a really great discussion recently about academics versus industry and the careers there. And then the book Malignant is also an audiobook, and it's, uh, I think, a good reference for, for Hemonk Fellows. So, yeah, thanks so much for taking time out of your day. And I'm happy to stop here and take some questions. So thank you. Yeah, I think like choosing among them for any of those cat for RCC or for CDK46 is like uh, uh, impossible because they can't really make head comparisons. Here's what I think I would do. One, with kidney cancer, I think it's important to remember that there's a fraction of people you can just observe and you don't have to treat right away. And I think we are seduced by the idea that they all need treatment, but they don't all need treatment right away. And some of them you can observe for many years, and um, and especially low volume disease or people who have had you know long disease free interval after after uh, surgery when they have relapse you can watch them if they're asymptomatic for a long time you don't have to treat everyone up front. Some people with like slow growing tumors you can think about doing one or the other. You could do a VEGF TKI and reserve that for the back end. All of those studies have never proven that the routine use of the doublet like Pembroaxi is better than just Sutent and then Pembro. They've never proven that. Um, and if you were to choose, I would choose the ones that's the least toxic. I don't like to give Nevo Ippi. I think it's super toxic. I choose Pembroaxi or something like that. I think Cabo is very toxic, so I'll try to minimize toxicity. That's how I would choose. And also price. If there is a, a pathway, a discount or something like that, I would prioritize that. With the CDK4-6 inhibitors, the biggest problem is there's so many problems with those studies. One of them has a survival benefit. The other ones don't. But to me, they all work the same. I think for low-volume, slow-growing, endocrine-positive breast cancer, you don't have to do a combo. You can just do hormone therapy, and they have really good tolerability. It can be reserved as a second-line drug. They've never proven that everyone needs Palbo up front versus Palbo second-line and just add it in. So I think you can reserve it for a second-line drug. There's hard to choose between the, the between of them. And I think it's another thing which is like that in fellowship, everybody gets treated all the time, I think, but in practice, a lot of people can be observed to kind of get some sense of the trajectory of their cancer. People whose cancer is growing aggressively should get treatment, but some people you can watch a fair bit, especially asymptomatic people with low tumor burden.